All right. Um, do you mind if I lead us in prayer before we begin? Merciful Father, we are grateful to you for every good gift that comes from your hand. We thank you for this institution of learning and for the knowledge and wisdom which you have placed in the teachers and staff here and which you are now in the process of working in the minds and hearts of these students. We ask, Heavenly Father, that in these few minutes this morning, you would help us to perceive what is one of the greatest problems, indeed one of the greatest dangers with that endeavour, so that these young men and women may be conscious of it, and indeed may mitigate it in their study now and in the years ahead, so that they would grow not simply to know things, but to know as they ought to know, and to display wisdom, and thus to be prepared not just for life, but for relationship with you and faithfulness before your eyes. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know, as he ought to know. I would like to speak to you this morning for just a few minutes on what I'd like to call the paradox of education. Have you ever had that experience when you're in a class with a really great teacher? And you go in and you feel completely out of your depth. You feel completely clueless. And at some point during the lesson, your eyes are opened and you feel like, oh, I understand. Maybe it's a math class and there's this tricky trigonometric function. You can't figure out how to integrate it. And you sat up half the night trying to work out how to... And your math teacher says, well, here's what you need to do, and it's this, and then you do this, and then this resolves into this, and then you remember the trig identity that we did six months ago, and then you, and then the scales fall from your eyes, and you think, oh, I understand. Or you're in a chemistry class, and you can't for the life of you figure out how a hexagonal close patch structure occupies the same volume as a face-centered cubic structure. It's like, why is it? Because they look completely different. And then your chemistry teacher says, well, look, if you take the hexagonal code close pack structure and you twist it like that, and then you change the angle like that, you see it looks just like face center cubic, except that it's A, B, A, B, A, B, not A, B, C, A, B, C, A, B, C. And you're like, ah, oh, I get it now. Or you're reading George Herbert's poem, The Altar. Have you read George Herbert's poem, The Altar? Okay, so one day you'll be reading George Herbert's poem, The Altar. A broken altar, Lord, thy servant rears, made of a heart and cemented with tears, whose parts are as thy hand didst frame. No workman's tool hath touched the same. And you think, I just don't understand this poem, because the third, it goes on like eight more lines. But the third and the fourth lines, you're like, okay, so that's Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 27 and Joshua 8, because no workman's tool hath touched this altar. So this is an altar that the Lord has made, because... 
The Lord must make the places in which he is to be worshipped. Yeah? So you don't go getting your kind of workman's tool and chipping away at the altar. And young Mr. Ray over there is thinking, oh yes, I remember because Joshua chapter 8 was last Sunday. Remember? Yeah. So this is an altar that the Lord has made. Lines 3 and 4. So how on earth is a broken altar made of a heart and cemented with tears? The Lord doesn't have a heart, at least not like our heart, and he doesn't cry. So how can the altar which the Lord hath made be like a heart and cemented with tears? And then your, your theology teacher opens your eyes. And you realise, of course, yeah, this is one way in which George Herbert frames both the doctrine of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, whereby we are involved in that which the Lord is doing, and also, of course, the place of suffering and the formation of what God is making. So, yeah, the Lord is making your tears, framing the altar of your heart. And the scales fall from your eyes and you think, I understand. Ever had those experiences where you you have a great teacher? If you have had those experiences where you think, I understand. And therein lies the problem. Because that great teacher of yours has given you the impression that you understand. That's the paradox of education. A great teacher must cause you to think, ah, I understand, I get it now. So you don't walk in confused and walk out confused and in and out and in and out and your brain just goes cloudy and fuzzy and by the end of the semester you're thinking, I need to go find another school where people are stupid as I am because I can't, <laughs> I can't cope with Grace Classical Christian Academy. Um, a great teacher will... Cause you to feel like you know, you understand. And then you remember, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know. Can you see the problem? There's a couple of intertwined issues here. But the first, of course, like if you think you understand George Herbert's poem, The Altar, because somebody has pointed out to you that the way that the first four lines integrate theologically is that the Lord's working in you those tears which shape your broken heart, which is the altar on which you may worship. If you think you understand it because you got that, (laughs) well, there are entire journals. Like, every quarter, new sets of articles are published that are devoted to nothing apart from George Herbert's poetry. There are people who write PhD theses on that poem. And you think you understand? You're afraid. Like, you've just figured out how to integrate some little trivial trig function. Let me tell you, there are people in the lab I used to work in in Oxford who, whose PhD was on building a computer program to allow them to do math problems that are more complicated than that. And the chemistry thing, well, for goodness sake, I mean... It's hard to find two structures which are more different than a face centre cubic and a hexagonal close packed structure in all of their mechanical properties, as you'd know, of course, if you understood any of those things. 
So here's the problem. The paradox of education is that your teachers have to dispel your knowledge. Sorry, they have to dispel your ignorance. <laughs> Careful. They have to dispel your ignorance and give you knowledge. And in the process of giving you knowledge, they cause you not to know. They take away your true knowledge of the way things are. In a couple of different ways. First way is, of course, they, they run the risk of shrinking your world. So that you imagine that what you know is not just true, which it might be, but comprehensive. You could imagine that you walk out of that classroom not just knowing something that's right, but knowing all that there is to know. And you, you fail to realise that what you have done is you've scratched the surface of some tiny little corner of the world. And you don't know anything at all, nearly. Okay, you know a little bit more than when you walked in, but, but you don't know the world. And of course then there's the, the theological corollary of that. And you see it sometimes in the arrogance of a young man or a young woman who thinks he knows or thinks she knows. You occasionally see it when young people are encouraged to debate with one another. I witnessed a debate. It was more kind of speech thing recently. A young man was explaining how... uh, those Christians who believe that God is sovereign over all things, including the decisions of individual believers to trust in Christ and to repent of their sins, and you, those Christians who believe that God is sovereign over those decisions are mistaken. All those Calvinists are wrong. I thought this is going to be interesting, so I thought edged a little bit closer to the door. Listen, what's going on here? And and the the lady who was probably old enough to be his mother, she might have been his mother, sort of just kind of patiently and quietly said, "Well, have have you considered um?" Romans 8, for example. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Have you considered that text? And and he said, as he'd been trained to do by those who taught him to debate, when he finds himself in a corner, when he finds his ignorance exposed, when he finds himself at the, the limits of his knowledge, as he'd been taught, what have you been taught to do in a debate when your priority is to win? Well, I'd have to go away and think about that in its context. And I, I was this close. I nearly opened the door and said, you know, good idea, young man. Why don't you go away and think? Can you see the problem? The paradox of teaching is that your teachers have to teach you things, but then the problem is you might end up thinking you know something. So how do you resolve this? Well, um, I want to give you two intertwined solutions. The first I owe to a former employer of mine. Um, a long time ago, before I was a pastor, I was a physicist. And um, I had the privilege of working in a lab in Oxford where my professor, Professor John Petherker, knew an Australian physicist called Professor Carl Sofield. Professor Sofield worked, worked at a, a lab south of Oxford, a government laboratory called Harwell Laboratory. And he had this little research group, and he got me a job there one summer. And so I was working on this machine called an atomic force microscope, and we were taking little pictures of individual DNA strands on flat substrates and trying to chop up the DNA strands and sort of move them around. You can see sort of molecularly resolved images with this microscope. Amazing thing. It's not, it doesn't work with light. You can't see things that small with light. It's a different principle, but ask me afterwards if you want. And um, so we had 
There was me, a couple of other people. There was this other younger man who was about 17, who was a kind of genius mathematician and computer programmer in the group. And occasionally, like once a week, we'd all get together with the great Dr. Sofield, and we'd, and we'd have a discussion about what we'd been discovering. And roughly once every 20 minutes, when we'd ask him like questions, he would say in his deep Australian twang, we'd ask him some question or other, and he would say, and I quote, I don't know the answer to that. I, I can't really do the accent. Um, I don't know the answer to that. There's a reason why a man like that gets to be a professor. I don't know. And this, at the time, 20-year-old, 21-year-old, I think I was, maybe graduate student, and his 17-year-old mathematician friend had asked a question, and the great Professor Sofield says, I don't know. I don't think he was a Christian man, but he did know instinctively from years of experience the world is so much bigger than that tiny portion of it that he understood. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. That's the first thing. The second, of course, is um, from Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So if the world is big and daunting, so that you can never get to grips with all of it, how would we ever begin to come to grips with all of it? And the answer is by fearing its creator. And we had a conversation yesterday in one of the theology classes I taught at uh, the Oaks Academy and for the young people at All Saints. Um, and the question was about how we should fear God. Should we fear God? And of course, we don't fear God in the sense of being frightened of him. First John 4, perfect love casts out fear. There is no fear in love. Fear has to do with punishment. We're not fearing that we will be punished by God. We don't fear God because he is so bad or so dangerous to us. But we might, and I can't remember who it was who said this, we don't fear God because he is so bad, but because he is so big. And we are so small. And so if you can realise that the world is very big, that the Lord, the living God, is even bigger and that you are very small, there is a tiny chance that you might overcome the paradox of education. And you might not walk out of here at the end of each day thinking you know when in fact you are ignorant. Your teachers can't do this for you. You cannot... You cannot blame them if you walk out of here thinking you know. This has to come from you. It has to come in humble dependence on the Lord, your humble dependence on the Lord, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That by my watch is 15 minutes. Um, So you teachers may wish to take your students and begin your lessons. If you have more time, then I'm happy to talk or pray with you or pray for you or continue a conversation or answer any questions. What would you like to do, sir? Does anyone have any questions? Nobody dares after that. I shouldn't <laughs> <know>. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Pause for a minute or two. This is a helpful exercise.
Yes. Can I have a question? I don't know, it's about your collar thing. I'm just curious why you're wearing it. I'm just curious. Why I wear this? Yes. That's a good question. Um, Hunter, if you have pastors who wear um, distinctive clerical dress at church, one, okay. <laughs> two, okay. Um, <laughs> it's, it's you. It's just me. <laughs> so, um, I, I'm not from this part of Texas, as you can tell. <laughs> Um, most recently, I lived in London, England, and in England, I, I didn't wear uh, clerical horror. I wore just normal clothes, rather like what headmaster was wearing. Um, and the reason I changed my practice here so that I wear a clerical collar when I'm serving in a context where my vocation as a pastor is particularly significant. So I don't wear one when I'm like barbecuing meat on Saturday afternoon. You know, if I'm at church or if I'm at a, a function like this where I'm um, uh, representing the church and speaking as a minister. Why do I wear a collar? Um, because my fellow pastor, Pastor Neil at All Saints, adopted that practice. And he also wears... Uh, a liturgical robe, a white robe, in worship, when he's leading worship, and so I adopted the same practice as him there as well. And the reason I did that was because you do not play games with people's Christian lives. You don't... Um, a worship service is not a kind of liturgical sandbox where you get to perform experiments on people and see how they respond. Or, let's try this, or let's try that. Um, changes of any kind to people's uh, experience of worship and their experience of relationship with their pastor ought to be made very, very carefully because otherwise you can unsettle people a great deal. And so the most significant reason why I uh, started to wear distinctive clerical uh, dress in some situations was because my fellow pastor, Pastor Neil, did. You might then ask, why does he? Right? Uh, and the simple answer to that is it's like a uniform. Um, you know when you um, see a police officer or you see a doctor or you see a nurse or you see a, uh, many other people have a distinctive uniform which marks you guys have a distinctive uniform which, which marks you out and, it, and it's one way of saying the most important thing about me in this context is not me, it's the role that I've been given. And um, that's really what's going on when I, I, I wear a, a clerical collar and especially a white robe when the most important thing about me is not me. Not me at all. It's the one whom I'm representing. I'm speaking in the name of Jesus. So I don't, I don't have any business leading God's people in worship or speaking God's word to them or declaring that their sins are forgiven. Only Jesus gets to do that. So if I'm speaking in the name of Jesus, I'm going to hide my own identity in some way. And this is kind of a halfway house. This is like a uniform of the pastor. The liturgical robe is like the full shebang. I don't even look like myself. I think I put it on, I think, who knows that looking at me in the mirror? And it, it's a very strange feeling to be to be hidden behind those um uh, to be hidden behind something which is designed to, to make you as a person less significant. 
So that's really, there's a whole bunch of kind of theology of why robes as opposed to, you know, some other kind of uh, distinctive dress, but that's basically the story. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. So where did you grow up? England. Um, I was raised, I was born, sorry, right up in the northeast of England, a place called Holtwistle, which is about 10 miles from Hadrian's Wall. You heard of the Emperor Hadrian? So he built this wall to keep the Scots out. <laughs> um, right across the top of England, the border with Scotland, near the border of Scotland. I was born up there. I moved to Coventry when I was very young. Coventry is an, um, I'm afraid to say, rather ugly town in the Midlands that was bombed in the Second World War and then rebuilt in a hurry um, by people who just discovered concrete but didn't know how terrible it was going to look in 20 years' time. And so they rebuilt the city. And then I moved to Whitney, which is just west of Oxford, and then to Oxford and then to London. So I've been all over, really, and then came to Texas about a year and a half ago. Yeah, Where do you see the paradox of education most, uh, most prominently? No, that's a very good question. Where do you see the paradox of education most prominently? Where you let people. I think a couple of... My experience is limited, okay, but... One is in young people when they're taught apologetics and all the things that, goes with, that go with that, debating and so on. Um, because that's a particularly combative form of understanding. Now, I'm not against apologetics, right? I've taught apologetics myself to people your age and, and not much older. But it, um, there's a cost to that, and it can generate a kind of combative spirit in, and an arrogant spirit in young people. Uh, the other place, I think, is um, not in schools at all, it's in churches where adults make the same mistake. You know, they read one book on some subject and they now think they understand it. And I, <laughs> like, right. and you want to see my fellow pastor, Pastor Neil's library? It's like five times the size of mine. And the, one of the things that's really interesting about people who really understand something is they're so quick to highlight what they don't know. It's true with scientists, actually. Really good scientists. We're very um, conscious of the limits of their understanding. And same with theologians. And, and sometimes you see among uh, adult Christians, the, the illusion of understanding is very, very strong. When you see this little tiny fragment of a subject, but it's all you see and you imagine that it's all there is. You know, well, think again. And, and it's wonderful actually to see genuine Christian growth happening as somebody, they might grow in their knowledge like this, but what really happens is that they're growing in their awareness of all this stuff they don't understand, and it generates a wonderful kind of a spirit of humility, which is evident in their conversation. And you can sometimes see when that spirit is lacking in the, the way they ask questions of you, or the way they approach subjects, or the way they approach um, discussions with other Christians. Yeah, good question, Drew. Thank you. Uh, you're pointing at somebody. My apologies. Put your hand up nice now. Yeah, I see. Um, so, do you think that it can become prideful in a way? Like, if you're like, I don't know anything, just kind of wallowing in that. Yeah. Could that also become a sin? Like, could you like that? Yeah, could the I don't, I don't know anything, you could be wallowing in your profession of ignorance. Yeah, absolutely. 
I don't know whether it's, I mean, maybe it would be a kind of pride because what you, you'd be then trying to, yeah, you, you'd be pretending like you knew that there's all this stuff out there that you don't know. And I'm very humble. I don't really know any of that, you know. So it, you, you could be put, putting on an act, pretending that there's loads of things that you don't know in order to give the impression that your awareness of it is greater than it is. Yeah, absolutely. Any, any good thing can be twisted and will be by the devil. That's what sin is. Sin, sin and evil in particular isn't a substance or a stuff that has being. It's not created by God. Evil is not made by God. Evil is the distortion of good things. You've read Augustine here. Okay? So it's a, it's a, what's the Latin phrase? I forget. I didn't know any Latin. Oh, I know about eight words in Latin. Privatio, help me out here. Privatio boni. Privatio boni. Thank you. I didn't want to pronounce it wrong. It's, a, it's the privation of the good. So what happens is you get a great thing and then you turn it to evil. And this is exactly what we're talking about here. Samson's great strength. And so he brings the entire temple down on top of himself. Saul's great military prowess. And he becomes arrogant and then ends up fighting against his own son. All sin is the perversion of a good thing. and In one sense, every area of life is about growing in our appreciation of good things and our expression of good things without distorting them and making them wicked. And this is just one way of doing it with knowledge and understanding. But yeah, very good question. Thank you. Headmaster, how are we doing? Oh, the question from the teacher here. You got yeah, a comment? One question. Please, yeah. I, um, <clears throat> this is something that I'm not sure how to answer. Um, I do like to know things. Um, <laughs> Good. <laughs> you want a teacher like that, by the way. <laughs> um, can I... Is it possible for me to sort of allow that to draw me on as a positive sort of incentive? And can I say, is it all right for me to sort of delight in knowing things and can I do that without it sort of being self-congratulatory? Mm-hmm. Like I have finally achieved, because I find my intellect, it has a hunger. Mm-hmm. And when it has some food, when it takes, when it bites down on something, mm-hmm. then that sends some sort of thrill to my heart as well mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I feel good, I feel like. But there's also this problem that that becomes... Yes, yes. Yeah, no, I think you've expressed it very well. And the answer has to be yes. And your awareness of that issue is a huge part of the battle. And to bring our intellectual life together with our piety for our faith, our faithfulness, is is really the heart of it, I think. Um, Was it Warfield who was was criticised by a contemporary who said, I'm going to butcher the quotation, but it's worse to the effect of, you know, half an hour on your knees would do you more good than 10 hours in front of your books. And he responded, you know, how he responded. Well, how about 10 hours on my knees with my books? Right. And so, I mean, you're, you know, you're at an interesting point in your career, if I might say so, because you clearly, you know, you've got a PhD in medieval philosophy, 
you've you've got a job here teaching these young people, um, but you, without being rude, you look like you might have a few decades ahead of you, which is fantastic. So think what you could be, and you know because of your studies, you know what a PhD is is dip your toe in this massive ocean and take out a thimble, and then somebody's going to give you a degree for this thimble. We've both had that experience. So now what you don't want to do is plonk that thimble on the desk and just spend the rest of your life gazing at it. <laughs> you know, you want you want to go back to the ocean and marvel at that on your knees. Yeah. So yeah, Lord bless you and um what a great teacher you could have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Alright, anything else, Headmaster? Alright. Uh shall I pray for you all? All of us. Let's pray. Merciful Father, thank you for these young people, for their teachers, for this place. Uh for your grace and kindness to us. You've entrusted us with infinite riches in Christ and a near infinite cosmos to enjoy. And we confess our failure to grasp how small we are and the magnificence of your creation and of your being. So please would you humble us at the same time as giving us that thirst for knowledge so that we Never think we know, but rather come to appreciate the grandeur of what we don't know and on. For that reason, a continual search humbly to plumb the depths of your ways and of your world. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for your time and for your attention. Thank you. Thank you.